0: Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours.
1: Hi, it's Violet here. This week, we're going to meet one of the most compelling personalities of the Middle Ages. We have to strain to hear the stories of medieval women, but one voice rings down the ages, clear as a bell. Alison, the wife of Bath, is Geoffrey Chaucer's most famous creation. Irrepressible, witty, insightful. She is the star of the Canterbury Tales, with her outrageous stories and touching honesty. Our guest this week, Marion Turner, J.R.R. Tolkien Professor of English at the University of Oxford, is an acclaimed expert on Chaucer. She takes us back to 1397 to meet him, his family and some real-life Alisons. These women are also the subject of the first part of her new book, The Wife of Bath, a biography, while the second half is a journey through Alison's many afterlives as a bookrunner a character who escapes into other stories, starting with Chaucer himself via Shakespeare, Spencer, Pope to Margaret Atwood and Zadie Smith, to name just a few. Many people have tried to silence Alison over the years, but her voice rings out as true today as when she first spoke six centuries ago. If you would like to see images accompanying this episode, please visit our website, tttpodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Welcome to Travels Through Time Marianne. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well we're here today recording in person which is always a big thrill and we are in the Faculty of English at the University of Oxford in a rather labyrinthine building. (laughs) I want to start by asking you uh, about the star of the show who is of course the wife of Bath and I'd like you to tell us to kick off what your relationship is with her what what does she
2: mean to you why did you want to write about her? So I think about her as the first ordinary woman in English literature and a big part of the argument of my book is that she is an innovator in all kinds of ways so Partly, I talk about the fact that before the wife of Bath, women in English literature were either idealised women such as queens, princesses, beautiful young virgins who get married off, damsels in distress, nuns, or at the other end of the spectrum, they were witches, they were old crones, they were prostitutes. And here we have a woman who is ordinary. She's middle-aged, she's what we would think of as middle class. She's working, she has sexual desires, she has friends, she's flawed in, in all kinds of ways. And she's also a storyteller. So I say that she's ordinary, but of course my relationship with her is really about the fact that she's extraordinary because by being the first, by being the first ordinary. So I think that she is extraordinary in the way that she is so excessive, but also because I think she is the first real character in English literature. So, unlike other characters, now we see someone who has a much more developed interiority, sense of self, sense of memory, sense of time. So, through this very unusual character, Chaucer experiments with what literary form and literary character can be. And although in some ways she's very much based in literary stereotypes, she's also very recognisable to lots of people. So, In wanting to write about her, I saw it as a way of telling lots of women's stories, which really mattered to me. So the idea that I take her as a lens, really, on late 14th century society. And as well as thinking about her literary antecedents, I also look at lots of different women, lots of fascinating medieval women whose stories have been just not told, people haven't really been interested in them. And I try and bring those to the surface. And I also straddle time. So that was an interesting experiment for me to look at the whole reception history of the wife of Bath and look at women right across time. So those are some of the things that she means to me.
1: And can you just tell us on a practical level how she fits into the Canterbury Tales? I know another way that she's extraordinary is that she gets way more lines, way more space in the book than the other characters. So can you just give us a brief overview of the practicalities of that?
2: Yeah, of course. So the Pilgrims get together in a pub in Southwark in South London and almost all the Pilgrims are men. They are buried in terms of social class and that's really important. That's a, something really different that Chaucer was doing and saying let's not just listen to a knight, let's listen to a cook and a miller. But there are only three women and the other two women who tell stories are nuns. So the wife of Bath stands out at once. Now most of the Pilgrims have a short prologue before they tell their tale. But three of the pilgrims have longer prologues, which are known as the confessional prologues. So they are the pardoner, the canon's yeoman, and the wife of Bath. They're all marginal figures in various ways. And they have these longer prologues in which we hear more about themselves, their thoughts, their interiority. But the other two longer prologues are, you know, a couple of hundred lines, whereas the wife of Bath's is over 800 lines long. So... It's really dramatic how much more we hear about her life than we do about anyone else's. So really, she has two tales. Her prologue, the story of herself, is a long story before we get to the actual tale itself.
1: And do you think, I mean, this is obviously conjecture, but why do you think Chaucer wrote so much more about her? Do you think he he sort of, what do you think his relationship with
2: her was? I think she was undoubtedly his favourite character. So, and the reason I say that is not only that he is so much more interested in her interiority than anyone else's, but also she keeps popping up elsewhere. So she pops up in other Canterbury tales. And interestingly, she pops up in the wrong level of fiction. So characters within another tale talk about her. And they shouldn't know anything about her. But she also pops up in one of Chaucer's short poems, which has nothing to do with the Canterbury Tales. So in another poem, he says to his friend, read the wife of Bath. So she becomes an authority there. So we can see that she kept she kept returning to his mind outside this text. And I think that he did know that he was doing something really new with her. I think he was interested in recovering marginal voices and this is a marginal voice which you know she's he creates as a character who is extremely vital she is a life force she tells us of all kinds of terrible things that have happened to her but she always wants to go on and she wants to be happy you know she has this power and so she keeps resurrecting herself in Chaucer's texts and then she went on resurrecting herself in other people's texts right up to the present day.
1: Um, And do you think that part of it was there was no reflection of real women in literature, as you've said, they were witches or princesses. Or Do you think that he felt that? And that was why he wanted to give the, the women who must have surrounded him. I mean, we know and I hope we'll, we're going to talk a bit about his wife later and the other women that surrounded him. Do you think that that was part of it or is, is it just not possible to say that?
2: Well, I think it's it's definitely possible to say that we can see not only in the Wife of Bath but in other characters that he created as well, that he was interested in talking about and thinking about female experience in a way that other people hadn't before. And I think that is part of his his bigger fascination with thinking about perspective. So one of the things that Chaucer does all through his work is really focuses on the idea that in order to understand why someone is saying something you know you have to try to stand in their shoes you know you you have to try to understand where that comes from that no one is speaking objectively that everyone's viewpoint is subjective and so we keep seeing the same story told by different kinds of people and they tell it very differently you know, he keeps showing us that that absolutes are are not, um, are not reliable. And so I think that we can see his interest in female experience as part of that interest in trying to think about the importance of different points of view, because these, as you said, these were points of view that were not heard in literature. And that is something that The Wife of Bath really focuses on, the idea that half of humanity has had very, very little chance to get their voice heard. And I think that is something that mattered to Chaucer.
1: And do you, was he one of the first people to do that? I know, you know, there's this sort of famous saying that he was the father of English literature and there was loads and loads of literature before him. Yeah. But was he the first person in this country writing in English to do that kind of thing of thinking really about people's motivation and as you say, standing in their shoes?
2: So in the 14th century, that's when we start really seeing the development of subjective narrators. So what we would think of as unreliable narrators. And that's something that we see beginning, particularly in some of the French poets that, that Chaucer read, people such as Macho, but then Chaucer takes it further. So I think most things come from germs of other people. You know, it's very, it's very hard ever to say, well, someone does something absolutely out of nowhere. Yeah, But at the same time, he certainly develops this idea of of all characters as unreliable, of the importance of thinking about these different points of view. He hugely develops that.
1: We, we're going to have to talk about misogyny, the dark miasma mm. that still, sadly, um, hangs over us today, all these centuries later. Can you tell us a little bit about the literature that preceded Chaucer and its depiction of women and 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 perhaps reference specifically the book which the wife of Bath talks about which she has this fight with her husband over. The book of Wicked
2: Wives yeah 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 absolutely so I think it is important to say that there are books before Chaucer which say positive things about women it's not that everything has been misogynistic but most commonly the women who are seen positively are you know, saints who die in order to remain virgins, for example, or devoted wives, or, you know, they are, you have to behave in certain ways to deserve a voice in most, in most earlier literature and, you know, in most later literature as well. Mm. Um, but there, is, there are positive, positive things that are said about women. But there's also a huge weight of anti-feminist, Literature and lots of the things, there are lots of the terrible things that are said about women. The wife of Bath herself references and indeed embodies a lot of misogynist literature. So, particularly, there are some very negative stereotypes about women in the Bible. So, the wandering woman of Proverbs, and particularly in the church fathers. So, someone like Saint Jerome, who writes a lot of terrible things about women. And then there are other writers um, such as Mathiolus and Deschamps. And there's lots of lots of people who write very negative things about women that the wife of Bath often then references. And sometimes what we see in the wife of Bath is that she says exactly what those misogynists say. Have said, but she does it a bit differently. So lots of lots of male writers said, well, women are they're all whores, essentially, and sexually unchaste, and they don't care about any men um, as individuals, and they're always husband hunting at their husbands' funerals. They, you know, you know, so so, and that is said in a very, you know, cynical, unpleasant way. The wife of Bath takes that misogynist stereotype. And she says, yeah, I know it's really bad, but I was at my fourth husband's funeral and I just couldn't help looking at the legs of the poor bear. <laughs> and, um, And the way that she says it, it is very funny. And we also know at that point that her fourth husband was an adulterer who was horrible to her. For most readers, we're on her side. Now, some readers would read that and say, yeah, you see, women are all terrible. But many readers say, okay, so she's taking that stereotype and she's knowingly saying, okay, maybe we do do that sometimes, but we have good reason. Why shouldn't we? And so, so there's a complex relationship with misogyny where many people would see the way that she is herself implicated in some of those misogynistic stereotypes. But more broadly, what happens in her prologue is that she tells us that her fifth husband was reading his book of wicked wives, you know, night after night. And this is a collection of anti-feminist treatises. And this is based on real medieval books. We still have many of these collections. Many of these manuscripts have survived. And he's reading these awful stories about women and applying them to, to real life. And eventually... This results in an altercation between them and domestic abuse, and he ends up hitting her, and she is partly deafened um, from this 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 terrible, you know, brutal assault. So so the idea that awful books about women are connected with violence is really important, I think. And the idea that your know, literature and history are really fundamentally connected in all kinds of ways, including in this very visceral, literal, physical way that in fact People make judgments about real women based on fictional women, based on what they've read about them. And writing shortly after Chaucer, Christine de Pizan, the French female writer, gave an example of someone that she knew. She talks about someone whose husband was reading The Romance of the Rose and then hit his wife, saying, you know, this is what women are all like. So there are other more historical examples as well of, of this happening, of literary texts, about how awful women are causing actual violence on women's bodies so i think it's it's really important to think about the fact that you know books don't exist in some social vacuum they really do have have meaning on people's lives and the wife of bath talks a lot about what happens with this when you are oppressed by this weight of misogyny all the time and that's where in, in one moment in her prologue she says very famously who painted the lion tell me who and she's referring there to a fable in which a man and a lion are looking at a picture of a man triumphing over a lion and the lion says but you know who painted that picture of course it was the human who painted it a human painted it and made humans look great and lions look weak so The Wife of Bath takes that famous fable and applies it to gender, which no one had done before, and is essentially saying, okay, so all these texts say terrible things about women, but that's because they've all been written by men. And she says, if women had told stories as men have in their oratories, they would have said of men more wickedness. So there is this really, I think, crucial point that women haven't had their voices heard. And that's then a refrain that we see right across hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's so striking that what she says there is very similar to what Anne Elliot says in Persuasion, where she talks, you know, very, very similar scene where she says, you know, well, the pen has been so much in men's hands, women haven't had the chance. You know, when when a man is saying to her, well, all literature is against you. And she says, well, I won't allow books to prove anything. And then Virginia Woolf in the 20th century when she imagines what would have happened if Shakespeare had had an equally talented sister and that it just wouldn't have been possible for her to get her voice heard in the same way. So this is a refrain that really goes across time and is is it's very interesting that it was foregrounded so strongly in the late 14th century. Yeah and quite
1: depressing that you know it's still very very much around today. I mean it doesn't have the same religious or, or at least not so much in western culture the same religious overtones as as it used to as you referenced saint jerome um but have you i just wonder with all your years of studying and teaching do you have any insights into where does this where does misogyny come from like what what's the root of it because I feel like at the moment there's so much in the media I was listening to something this morning about Jacinta Ardern has stepped mm-hmm. down and, and apparently a large part of that is the misogynistic abuse she received and it's sort of you know that the Met police all those scandals at the moment but nobody seems to ask why why are certain people misogynist where does it come from and I wondered if you have any I mean that's a very very big question but do you have any thoughts on that?
2: I mean, that is a, an extremely important, but also really, really big and difficult question. And I suppose, I suppose I would say that we need to think separately about structural misogyny and individual misogyny so that structural misogyny, I suppose, originates in, in very fundamental power imbalance based on an imbalance of strength and an imbalance in terms of, the body so because it was much easier for one sex to oppress the other one because the other one was physically weaker and before contraception and abortion was i mean there was always some contraception and abortion but before the pill and legalized medical abortion you know your women's bodies were so much easier for men to control than men's bodies have ever been for women to to control should they should they want to so i think that you can see how from very early societies, structural misogyny was embedded because it was so easy for men to oppress oppress women and of course not every society has been patriarchal we have had some matriarchal societies but most of the major religions embedded patriarchy as you know as a fundamental part of their religion they made men more important and gave them powers that women were not able to have so i suppose that's that sense of structural misogyny where women then were not able to have the same political power, the same economic power, so so, it, so it, it continued. I think individual misogyny, because within every society, however patriarchal, there are some men that don't act like that. that yeah, of course. Are, you know. But
1: that's what I mean. And so I...
2: where does that, that's what I, yeah. But so... it often
1: feels like it works on two levels, and obviously, yeah. you know, there, there's huge overlap, but it sort of almost feels like sometimes misogyny is performative, so you get people yeah. saying, you know, there's certain people whose names I'm not going to mention, but who it's almost become their kind of career. And yeah. then you wonder on an actual day-to-day level, they must have mothers and possibly sisters and fe- possibly even female friends, who knows, who they cannot possibly behave like that towards... They can't enact mm-hmm. those. So that it feels like there's this weird kind of gap. And it's the same with you talk about St. Jerome, who wrote some really horrific things about women but then actually was quite close to certain women in his life and sort of worked with them and and there
2: seems to be this sort of duality there going mm. on, which is Well, that's is the kind of oh, some of my best friends, isn't it? It's that kind of idea where people will say that they are, will be appalling racists and then say, oh, but I've got a really close friend who's of another another race or ethnicity. And they don't make those connections, which is, you know, extremely depressing. But I think on an individual level, it's really hard to know, you know, what, what comes from upbringing, what comes from peer pressure, what comes from... Hormonal factors and all all those different things that make some people, you know, much more, I suppose, aggressive, insecure, misogynist than than others. But in terms of this, as I mean, I think you it's interesting that you were mentioning Jacinda Ardern because these days, you know, the issues around social media have definitely put us into, I think, a different world. Where I mean, I'm I wouldn't say that things are more misogynist now than they were. 10, 20 years ago, but that probably individuals in the public eye feel it more intensively because of those pressures. And I think actually one of the things that, that I quite often think about when I'm when I'm writing about Chaucer is that, as I've already mentioned, with his focus on perspective and different points of view, I think that he was extremely interested in trying to encourage people to get out of their comfort zones, you know, to listen to different voices. And that's the whole point of The Wife of Bath. You know, if you just listen to voices of one segment of society, everyone, every reader is impoverished by that, every individual. And today, I think the, you know, the algorithms of social media are pushing people more and more only to listen to one kind of voice, only to listen to the voices that they already agree with and are actively discouraging people making it very difficult for them to get out of their comfort zones. And, you know, some people can have the, the mouse and the um, get up and go to try and do that. But it's very hard for people and, you know, for for younger people who are brought up with that algorithm world. It, it's so it's just so hard for them. So, I mean, again, I think it's it's one of those um, reminders of where older literature was already kind of onto this, onto the, the this issue of, why we really do need to to make ourselves make ourselves uncomfortable and you know even those of us who might who might think well you know we we are listening to all kinds of voices you know I mean very few of us really are and it it is important I think you know sometimes I try and look at you know newspapers and things that I don't like to see what they are saying and to, to try to think and you know what what stories are being reported there that aren't being reported in the kind of media that I read or, you know, all those kinds of things. And it's, But it's hard to do that, I think. Yeah, it is.
1: But that's just another way that Chaucer was an inspiration Completely.
0: to us all. Hello there. Quick word from me about our partners, Ace Cultural Tours, in this break. Now it's January, it's pretty cold and dreary outside, but here I am sat in the warm with a copy of Ace's beautiful brochure of tours, for the year ahead in my hands, and it's a brochure full of delights. In March, for example, you can head off to Ravenna with them, the famous city of mosaics to absorb the Roman and Byzantine architecture. Or in May, you can discover the treasures of the wonderful art collections of Harvard and Yale on a tour through the great art collections of New England. If you're into music, then there's a tour to the Richard Strauss Festival in Dresden this April. Or if you just want to get some fresh air in the great outdoors, then there's a cultural trip to the county of Norfolk in June. In fact, in this catalogue, there's the details of more than a 100 different tours from the UK to Uzbekistan, from the USA to Sweden and just about everywhere in between. So there's something for just about everybody. To have a look for yourself, head to their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk.
1: I think now we should travel back in time. So I'm going to ask you if you could get in a time machine and go back, which year would you like to visit? So we are going back to 1397. And can you set the scene for us? I think the the king is Henry the Fourth. Is that right? Richard the Second. Richard the Second. Richard the <laughs> Second. Not quite Henry. Not quite. But he's, he's looming. He's looming. <laughs> so set the scene for us briefly. Tell us what's happening.
2: Yeah. So if if we were round the corner, we could be in some buildings from 1397. Yes, and of course, Oxford was a university then, and there were some colleges um, going. Um, including, yeah, well, several. Okay, so thirteen ninety seven. So we're at the end of Chaucer's life. Chaucer was born in the early thirteen forties. He died in in fourteen hundred. Um, Richard the Second was on the throne. Richard the Second had become king when he was only ten. And as your listeners will know, this rarely goes well <laughs> when you have a, a child king and a, and a minority. Yeah, we often talk about te- yeah. teenagers in power on trouble and- Yeah, and indeed it, it hadn't gone very well. No. And um, his the early years of his reign had seen the Great Revolt, also known as the Peasants' Revolt, when he was only 14. And then all kinds of ructions in the City of London between different mayors, and then some very dramatic parliaments in the 1380s, the wonderful parliament and the merciless parliament, ending in the the execution of a number of important people in 1388, and the removal of power from the king for, for a period of time, because the king, and again... We see this a lot. The king was seen as um, privileging his favourites, his friends, not taking the advice of his uncles and the senior nobles and so on. His wife, who was Anne of Bohemia, who had brought all kinds of interesting Bohemian culture over to to England. She had died in 1394 and that was the loss of an important kind of moderating influence on, on Richard, who was then brooding over what had happened in the 80s and on what he saw as his humiliation and the exile of his friends and which none of that had he liked at all and of course this whole period we've got the plague in the background so the plague that had come in the 1340s wiped out maybe half of the population you know an enormous proportion of of people but had then caused all kinds of social mobility and change because after the plague the same amount of land needs to be farmed But there's many fewer people to do it and so people got higher wages people thought actually i can't really be bothered to do this at all i'm going to move to the city i'm going to try a different job and that affected women as well so more women moved to towns got better jobs took more opportunities there were lots of things called sumptuary laws that the government tried to pass which were laws that told people what they were and were not allowed to wear and none of these laws worked you know people just did what they liked but it's an interesting example of the fact that the government was worried about social mobility and they also passed laws statutes of laborers to try and keep wages down again didn't work but you but that's you know but people were anxious about that and this is also a period, the late 14th century, where there's just this extraordinary development of vernacular culture. So in particular, um, writing in English. So there'd always been writing in English, you know, there's an unbroken tradition back to the, the 7th century. But most literary writing had been in Latin and French in England in in the previous couple of centuries or so, and or more than that. And at this time, we get Lots more writing, literary writing, but also political, legal, scientific, medical writing in English. But in the literary sphere, in the late 14th century, there's um, Langland and Piers Plowman, there's Gower who wrote poems in French, Latin and English. Lots of anonymous romances. There's also the anonymous poet who wrote Sir Gawain and The Green Knight. And of course, there's Chaucer. There's also Julian of Norwich, um, our first named female writer in English and an extraordinary writer who was an enclosed anchorite Um, and living at this time, but not writing till the early 15th century is Marjorie Kemp. Very interesting married woman with many children who traveled all over the the holy land and europe and dictated a book um early in the 15th century and of course there's Chaucer the 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 greatest writer of all not only of this of this era <laughs> but of any era and so Chaucer had by this point 1397, been writing for many decades and was coming to the end of his life, though of course he didn't know that at this point. And he had really changed what English literature was capable of. He had lived an extraordinarily interesting life, having jobs including being a diplomat, a soldier. He was a prisoner in the Hundred Years' War in France. He was also an MP. He was a customs officer. He was clerk of the king's works in charge of buildings such as the Tower of London. He did all kinds of interesting things. Travelled all over Europe, went roads to Italy at least twice, went to Navarre, in which is now northern Spain, many times to France and Flanders. And he'd written dream poems such as The Book of the Duchess and The House of Fame and The Parliament of Fowls, Legend of Good Women. He'd written Troilus and Crusade, his great five-book romance. He'd translated The Romance of the Rose and The Treatise on the Astrolabe, a scientific tract that he'd translated for his 10-year-old son. And of course, he'd been writing The Canterbury Tales. By this point, he'd been writing them probably for about a decade, but he went on writing them until his death.
1: And he did most of his writing in his spare time didn't he because he was working
2: exactly amazing well let's go to your first scene please where, where are we off to okay so we are in january 1397 and we are in parliament so parliament was held in different places in in the 14th century but this parliament was was in westminster and what i want to talk about in this parliament is a particular thing that happened just to, to set a bit more parliamentary scene, the parliaments of this era were very dramatic and important. You know, later in 1397 was something called the Revenge Parliament. Um, I, I also like the fact that lots of parliaments got their own adjectives, you know, merciless revenge, um, which of course were given, were given later. But when Richard did take his revenge against the people that had attacked him a few years earlier. But the event that I want to talk about in this January Parliament, I'm interested in it because it is deeply personal and profoundly political. So it relates to the sexual relationship um, between a man and a woman and their children and their family dynamics. But it also, what happened at this Parliament to that relationship, completely changed the future of the English monarchy. And so what that event was, was it was the legitimisation, so the making legitimate of the four Beaufort children. So John of Gaunt was the son of Edward III and the uncle of Richard II and the father of Henry Bolingbroke, who was to usurp the throne a couple of years later. So John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster extremely important man, enormous landowner, incredibly rich, had been effectively regent really when when Richard was a child, very, very important man. And he he had been married, first of all, to Blanche, about whom Chaucer had written his first long poem, The Book of the Duchess, about Blanche's death, and then had been married to Constance of Castile. So these were both marriages to extremely important women. But while John of Gaunt was married to Constance of Castile, he had a long-term mistress called Catherine Swinford. And they had four children in the 1370s, um, three boys and a girl. And now in the 1390s, so after Constance had died, John of Gaunt had absolutely shocked the country by marrying his mistress. You know, no one ever did that. And not only did he marry his mistress, but this was a woman who was not very socially important. Everyone knew she'd been his mistress for decades. They already had four, you know, pretty much grown up children and he married her. And that made her the most important woman in the country after the queen had died, which so there was no queen at this point. She was the most important woman in the country. And she, (laughs) that that was absolutely incredible. And, you know, many people, as you can imagine, did not think much of that. And then he went to work to try to, get their illegitimate children made legitimate and there were two things he had to do so in 1396 he sent people to the pope and the pope was fine with this kind of thing (laughs) it was actually much easier to get the pope to do this than to get parliament to do it the pope have a few
1: illegitimate children well
2: it was pretty it was just it was quite a common thing and the church was happy to make children retrospectively legitimate if the parents had married right But the common law wasn't so happy with that. So that didn't because, I I suppose, because the common law affects inheritance rights and so on. And so that wasn't what would normally happen in in non-church law.
1: And there's also the class issue that Catherine Swinford was not, Noble, yeah,
2: yeah. And So that was seen as very shocking. So, so Gaunt actually had to go to Parliament to ask for this to happen, for his four children to be made legitimate, and it did happen. So there's an Act of Parliament saying these children are now are now legitimate. So it's retrospectively amazing, you know, going back 20 years, kind of wiping that out. Even though he'd been married to someone else At when the they were born, they were now legitimate, and this is really interesting for a couple of reasons. So. The Beauforts, who, as I say, were born of a very unimportant mother and were, you know, were treated and were bastards when they were were born, according to 14th century um, ideas. They were the ancestors of Henry VII. And Henry VII derived his claim to the throne from the Beauforts. And of course, that's then the Tudors. That's all later monarchs. You go back to the Beauforts and this very unimportant woman, Catherine Swinford. But wonderful woman. Yes, absolutely. And I'll talk more about her in a minute. Absolutely. But and that wouldn't have been possible had they not been made legitimate. So this completely changed, you know, I mean, and in some ways you do think, gosh, you know, so we could have avoided Henry VIII, wow, you know, this is a... <laughs> yeah, but then we wouldn't have had Elizabeth I. So. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> um, and, and interestingly, when, so a decade after, in, in the early 15th century, when this legitimation was um, was again affirmed by Henry the Fourth, there was a clause put in saying that it that they didn't have the right to the throne, even though they were legitimate, but that was just ignored later. And and Henry VII did derive his right to the throne through the Beauforts. But as you rightly say, she was also a a wonderful and fascinating woman. And another reason why she's extremely interesting to me is that she was Chaucer's sister-in-law. So these two sisters, Catherine and Philippa, you know, both had very interesting marriages. So um, as their maiden name was Deroe, so Philippa Deroe, who married, so they were from a Haino family. Haino was a country which is now um, subsumed between France and Belgium, but it was a separate county then. So Chaucer's wife, Philippa, who for much of the time you know, lived with her sister and Chaucer's children were largely brought up in this kind of fluid household where there were Chaucer's children, there were Catherine's legitimate children by her first marriage, her illegitimate Beaufort children, and Henry's legitimate children, including the future Henry IV. It seemed to all have been very kind of tolerant and friendly and they all seem to have very good relations with each other throughout their lives and to you know the important ones gave the less important one jobs later in life and so on and it was really very good for Chaucer's particularly his oldest son Thomas Chaucer who ended up getting a lot of patronage from John of Gaunt um, but but all his children did well from the Gaunt connection and so did Chaucer and what's really interesting is that connection was mainly forged by women and Mm. by this sexual relationship I mean Chaucer had already met Gaunt but undoubtedly his close ties to Gaunt were maintained because of his wife's position because of his wife's sister so it's interesting for Chaucerians as well as for historians more generally but I think it also it just makes us think about the way high politics and the personal can be really really profoundly connected. Well,
1: and also how small the world the, how much smaller you know there we were fewer people and, and it seems like an extraordinary coincidence that this great writer happened to be the sister-in-law <laughs> the brother-in-law of um john of gaunt's final wife um wonderful well let's um let's move on to your second scene which um we're still we're, we're, we're with chaucer now and um he has been granted something quite special so can you tell us about that Yeah.
2: Okay. So this one is at the end of the year. So at the end of the year, Chaucer was given a new grant and it replaced other similar grants that he'd had, but which had then fallen away. And this new grant or present from the king was a ton of wine every year. How is a ton, just for so it's our it's it's two hundred and something gallons. It's a wow. lot of wine, a lot um, of wine, yeah. But it replaced. So he had had an earlier grant back in the thirteen seventies, which was a gallon of wine a day. So a, a, um, a which was kind of like a pitcher a day. So a big jug but you weren't expected to drink all that yourself. So you would get it, and then you would distribute. Totally <laughs> not. <it>. Yeah, <laughs> and you would distribute it to your household and to to friends and to servants, and you know, be a way that you then could pass on on patronage as well. And as I say, he'd he'd stopped getting that, so this was a a new one which kind of replaced this earlier gift. So you get this large amount of wine, and he was to get it from the port of London, and this was a a yearly grant, but you might get it in bits. One of the things that's interesting about this is that Chaucer remained in favour at this point. So uh, this was at the end of the year when Richard was really quite paranoid, picking off lots of people. Um, Chaucer was still working for him then, but he also went on to work for... This grant was renewed a couple of years later when Henry came to the throne because he had good connections with him as well, and Chaucer generally seemed to keep on everyone's right side. He never committed himself too strongly to any one faction, but he always kept reasonably in favour. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that, so we get the, the record about this, um, this wine comes the following year. But in that record, the 1398 record, it says that it was granted to Chaucer in December 1397, so when I was um, when I was researching my biography of Chaucer, Chaucer European Life, and I was looking into where Richard was that December, December thirteen ninety seven, and he was mainly travelling around Oxfordshire, and that's quite interesting to me. Obviously, not only because I live here, but also because. Chaucer's son lived in Oxfordshire at that time, so he his main home was in a place called Uelm, which is just a few miles from, from Oxford, and if any listeners are near there and want to go there, they can still see Thomas Chaucer's tomb and also... His daughter Thomas's daughter Alice, her tomb, really interesting woman who I, I talk a lot about in my my yes, wife that, of birth book. Um, that was fascinating. Reading yeah, about she's great. Her. Alice I'm not Chaucer. sure we're going to have time no, um, no, to but, talk about her, but but 15th century Duchess. Um, yes, find out more about her in the wife of birth biography. Um, but their tombs are there in UL, and so so Richard in December 1397 was partly in the the. The, the fairly minor residence but at Woodstock which there's no trace of that now but it's near where Blenheim now now is and he was also in Banbury and Richard often liked to be outside London and he had he, he often didn't feel that he was very well supported in London he spent a lot of time in the northwest in fact but at this point he's traveling in Oxfordshire and it's really interesting to think of Chaucer maybe visiting him, maybe in, in attendance on him at somewhere like Woodstock. Well, we know Chaucer visited earlier in his career when he was a page boy for Elizabeth Countess of Ulster, which was his first job. Elizabeth was, was married to Lionel, one of the sons of Edward Third, So we know he'd been in this area before. But I also wonder if at that time he was also maybe partly based at his son's manor in Uelm and was was travelling there as well and it was it was reasonably convenient for him to be going between the king's um, the king's residence just near Oxford and a few miles away and his son's residence a few miles in the other direction. And then he gets this really, you know, wonderful grant of, of favour, this mark of favour. And I think, you know, we all in some ways like to imagine a world in which you could be paid partly in wine. <laughs> Presumably he would have also been paid in money as well. Yeah, he also got, he also had annuities and gifts and like financial gifts as well. Yeah, absolutely. He had salaries too. Though often it was quite hard to get your salary paid. Um, But this was a world in which people did often get paid quite a lot in kind. You know, they would get particular robes clothing fabric for particular occasions for example they would get their keep you know when you were at court you would be sleeping there and eating there and these kinds of grants were um were not at all uncommon and it's it is it's an interesting world to imagine that but also I think just I mean one thing that I find very interesting is to think about what when you are in a world where you're paid in clothes and food and a place to sleep kind of what that does to your to your sense of self you know because in some ways you are being you're being dressed and fed by your employer it's a it's a very strange sense of of selfhood and how you how you relate to that more important in your world person but
1: in those days that was much more normal wasn't Mm, it I was thinking the other day about um, you know the idea nowadays we all have our own home and we have our own bedroom we have sort of very much our own personal private space and that just wasn't the case in medieval, you know, in earlier Mm. periods, people would maybe just have a little sort of pallet beside the fire in the kitchen, or, you
2: know, it was just a very different way of living, wasn't it? Exactly, and a different way of thinking about privacy, Mm. and about what it means to be a person, because we are very used to being able to be alone. But that's very specific to certain societies, whereas I think a lot of us you know, we have a kind of unexamined assumption that that's, that's a normal thing to want to be alone sometimes. But in lots of societies, it's not. And I think it also affects things like how we think about creativity. Because when Chaucer writes about creativity, you know, there's one passage where he basically makes it clear that the reason he's got writer's block is that he's not talking to other people enough. You know, whereas that's it kind so of, interesting yeah. where it's the opposite now. You yeah, kind of
1: exactly. need to go and shut yourself
2: away. Or yeah. well, that's what people think they
1: need. But maybe but they that don't. was maybe or... a more an idea that came in with kind of Montaigne and in later period, the yeah. idea of sort of sitting in your ivory tower surrounded yeah. by your books.
2: Yeah, and particularly it becomes then a real post-Enlightenment you know, idea that you know we, we have this kind of sublime individual genius creativity, mm. that, that kind of idea, which we tend to retroactively you know to fit retroactively to other periods whereas in most periods people haven't thought about originality or genius in that way you know that they've been very they've seen you know using other people's texts developing their ideas translation of something that's very creative you know all those kinds of things so so I think yeah that sense of of living more in public more with others most of us immediately have a kind of um negative reaction to that mm. but but i think that's an interesting thing to, to re-examine yeah
1: and to go back to your point about this um amorphous group of children who were all being i mean that was probably that was quite normal wasn't it big mm. households yeah. noble households there would be children from of all different people would have sent their children to be brought up there or they'd be working as pages or must have been really fun.
2: <laughs> yeah, in lots of ways, absolutely. And that Chaucer, although he was the son of a merchant, he then we don't know exactly how his his father got him into this noble household as a page boy as a teenager, which clearly was very important for his intellectual and political. because yeah, um, he would have been educated while he was there, presumably. Yeah. Yes. To read and write and stuff. He would already have known those kinds of things because because he didn't go until after he'd been at grammar school and so on. Oh, right. Okay. But further educated, yes. In yeah. terms of there would have been all kinds of opportunities there for encountering language
1: and so on yeah oh it's so interesting um right we must, we must we must march on to your third scene
2: yeah so my third scene so this is in the summer and we're back in london and this is i think quite a quirky scene because the other two that i've talked about have both they've both involved the king and even though i think they've both been personal scenes you know one involving the the sexual relationship and the other involving you know this this very kind of quirky personal gift they nonetheless of course because they have involved the king they've also seemed to be more relating to kind of high politics and i do think when we think about history it's it's really important to try to think about more ordinary scenes as well and so you, you know scenes that because most people they don't meet the king that's not most people's history. Well also in the spirit of the Wife of Bath. Yes absolutely so the Wife of Bath biography which is very much in its first half about trying to recover the stories of ordinary women and so one of those women is Margaret Stoddye. Um Margaret was a a very wealthy privileged woman from a mercantile background so daughter of a a merchant in London who then inherited a great deal um was a was an important heiress and married four times so again to the wife of Bath of course a fictional woman who marries five times that would not have seemed weird or unusual or excessive to Chaucer's audience it was fairly normal for um, for wealthy widows to marry several times, and you know they they were very highly respected, and the wife of Bath who also inherits a lot from her husbands. Again, that was normal at this time because um, the inheritance laws in England were very good for widows. People had the right to to automatically to inherit a good chunk of money and property from their husbands, and those rights were even better in London for mercantile women. So Margaret Studzai, the scene is 1397 in July, and she goes to St. Paul's Cathedral. And you have to imagine, not the St. Paul's that we know today, but old St. Paul's that was destroyed in the fire. So old, But it's in the same place. So old St. Paul's Cathedral. And she goes there, and she goes to the vestry, so a reasonably private space. And in front of the bishop, Bishop Braybrook, she makes a, a vow, a solemn vow. And this is a vow of chastity for the rest of her life. And At the point where she makes this vow, so Margaret, as I said, she's been married four times, been widowed four times, and presumably she now decided that she had had enough. So although we don't know her exact age, she was around in her late 40s or so. So she was probably, she was probably approaching the menopause, um, approaching the end of of childbearing years, or maybe she was just past the age of of childbearing. Um, But she'd also spent a lot of time you know being married to these different yeah. the marriages had tended tended to follow quite quickly on each other you know at one point she got married when she was pregnant from the previous husband and no one thought that was inappropriate at this time you know that that wasn't how people thought but so she spent a lot of time you know in her in her different marriages she'd now accumulated a lot of wealth both from her own inheritance from her father and then from her husband's and her husband's left her very well provided for you know and there were some things where you know one husband said well this 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 money will eventually go to um to charity but only after my wife's death. So she got the interest from that particular chunk while she was alive, but then he didn't want to pass it on. Then it didn't go after that to his children. It went after that to the city, to charity. So she was left very well provided for. And for whatever reason, she now thought, well, I've had enough of being in the sexual economy and I want to be independent and do my own thing. And so she made this vow of chastity. So formally, I suppose the point of doing that. So partly, of course, she might have wanted to do that, to to make that promise to God. You know, we, we of course, don't know for how... For religious reasons. Yeah, she might have wanted to make that clear to God. But she also might have wanted to make it clear to society that, you know... She that, wasn't on the lookout. Exactly. And that the rich merchants should, should look elsewhere, should not keep, you know, hanging around. Because presumably, even though she was, you know, not in the first
1: flush of youth, she would have been a very attractive proposition for a lot yeah. of people. Absolutely. She was so wealthy,
2: Very wealthy and very well connected, yeah. you know, all kinds of important relatives and so on as well. So yes, exactly. That would, it would not have been hard for her to find another, you know, well-off attractive husband. And so I think she also probably wanted to make that absolutely clear to everyone. I'm just not in that world. You know, I can't, I don't want to be explaining it individually to everyone who comes around, you know, that, that this is what I'm doing now. And then she could kind of relax. And she did live for many more decades. You but know. she...
1: did did she she didn't join a nunnery no 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 no. so she and did she continue to manage her affairs and her money and be yeah yeah so she
2: carried on living an active economic um yeah business life but yeah exactly so she kept on living in the world and living socially and she had children and so on that she you know to, to take care of and but she but she was saying i'm not anymore in the business of marriage um so it's also i mean it's an interesting example as well of the kind of the kind of choices that some women had you which is not the case in all countries at this time, I was very surprised by that in your book. it really
1: came across how England and northern Europe were much more enlightened, if you could put it like that than yeah. uh, France and Italy and and Spain when it came to women 's rights at this point
2: yeah exactly, so at this moment, particularly England and the Netherlands low countries were um were really were a better place for for women to be than most other places in Europe and that was a lot because of inheritance laws so that in England women could inherit from their husbands and could keep their dowry and their dower even if they married again or if they went to live somewhere else. Whereas in other countries, such as Italy, a woman would lose her dowry if she went back to her parental home away from her husband's family, and would lose control of her children as well. So there were all kinds of ways in which it was really, you know, it was it was really quite okay to be a, a wealthyish woman a widow. in yeah a widow in um particularly in London at this time. And I do think you know I know we're about to wrap up, but I think it's important to say that. I'm not saying that it was great. Obviously, they didn't have the vote. They didn't have epidurals. No, 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 no. There That's was, not. you know, the wife of Bath writes about domestic <clears throat> abuse and rape, and the books of wicked wives that we've talked about earlier. Yeah. And I suppose I do want to say that 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 of course is there. I'm not idealizing these women's experiences, but at the same time, I think many people do expect that medieval women were mainly you know at home and didn't have the kind of economic power or sexual choices that in fact many of them did have and you know for me it's been really important to recover the stories of women like margaret and tell those stories because a lot of women were were, were independent were taking risks were taking control of their own identities and you know there's so many of these stories to tell yeah and as you say they haven't they're not widely told they're not widely
1: known we have to rough up Sadly, because I've got so many more questions I wanted to ask you, but the last question I have to ask you is if you could have taken something, picked something up um, from one of these scenes that we visited today and brought it back to the present
2: and kept it for yourself, what would it be? that one is really easy. So I would be with Chaucer in Oxfordshire and I would pull out of his pocket his handwritten draft of part of the Canterbury Tales and I would have that with me today. And even though it would be worth literally an unimaginable amount of money, I would keep it for myself.
1: Quite right. What a fantastic choice. Thank you so much. This has been really, really, really fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. That was me, Violet Moller, talking to the brilliant Professor Marion Turner last week. Her new book, The Wife of Bath, A Biography, is on sale now, as is her acclaimed biography, Chaucer, A European Life. For more information and to listen to all of our previous episodes, please visit tttpodcast.com.